Petersfield's Shine Radio. This is Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Hello, I'm Susie Wilde, and you're listening to the 20th edition of Talking Books, our monthly look at what's hot (laughs) and what's not. And I'm Tim O'Kelly of One Tree Books, and our guest this month is Ben Dark with his wonderful book about gardening. And you had Patrick Gale here for a book signing, didn't you, Tim? I did. Uh, he was absolutely charming. What a, what a nice man. And I had a, uh, a really good chance to have a, a good interview with him as well. So that's coming up later. I look forward to that. Well, let's kick off with what I've been reading. So um, I'm not going to say much about Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus because I know, Tim, that you, for a start you lent it to me and I think you're going to be telling people more about it. And as I've only yeah. just started it but I have to say everybody I am really loving it already despite the fact this is a debut author in her 60s so I was prepared to hate her with jealous writerly rage um it's really good um the other one I've been reading is Mother's Boy by Patrick Gale of course I'm reading that because I've an interest in Charles Causley Mostly I find I'm not too good if anything is based even in very much a fiction about a biography, about somebody who's real. It makes me slightly queasy as if I'm intruding in a place I shouldn't go. And I know that's absolutely ludicrous and it is beautifully written. So I still commend it to people. Um, But my top, top read um, is The Old Enemy by Henry Porter. Now, I can remember vividly... Uh, Firefly, which was the first in this series. And I think if you like Spies, if you like John le Carre, this is very much an, an up-to-date version of that. And I think better. Well, I certainly think he's he is less complicated. Um, he's still pretty complex, but not less complicated, I think. Uh, and he, it's easier to read. I think that's one of the things. I mean, le Carre, I In do a good like, way. Though, yeah, and I do like Lecarre. Um but the thing about Henry Porter is that you can really, um, you know, you're in the hands of a master, actually. He's really good I at think he he's does. better at women. I think okay. he's better at the inner lives of women. Right, OK. And particularly as one of the, the main protagonists, as you know, is female. It's, it's essential. She almost carries a lot of the action. It has to be good and believable. But the other thing, you know I love audiobooks. So, actually, oddly, um, my other pick... My final pick for this month is Mother's Boy by Howard Jacobson. Um, But it's um, sort of subtitled A Writer's Beginnings. And he narrates the audiobook as well. And I'd like to just play a brief extract from that. At the beginning of the year, when the virus was first mentioned, she had expressed surprise I was taking elaborate precautions. Oh, Howard, you aren't worrying about that, are you? as though she hadn't schooled me to prepare for eventualities undreamed of either by the wildest dystopians or the most minute obsessives. The day I left home to go to university, she'd reminded me to take enough toilet paper. What, for three years? Until you settle in? I think Cambridge will have toilet paper, I said, but I took a roll just in case. Yet now that we really did have to contend with a calamity equal to her anxieties, she had turned perversely carefree. Oh, Howard! It was like having Mr. Micawber for a mother. One minute sunk in the deepest gloom, facing imminent catastrophe, the next sitting up on the back of a coach, cheerfully eating chestnuts out of a paper bag. 
I think I think he is he's a very clever writer and he's a great broadcaster as well actually. Um, Hal Jacobson. I think I really really do rate him actually. I absolutely adore him. So he I mean, breaks the, my rule of not reading autobiography or biography. Yeah. I mean, some of his fiction can be a bit uh, obscure and, and tricky at times, but. Um, no, I think he's. I he's like really the good. Finkler question. I actually yeah. shook his hand that yeah. evening, that very evening. I said, if I ever meet you, I vowed I would shake your hand. Good. And he gave me a, a very lovely hug. Good, very nice. Um, over to me. I've got a few books that I've been reading at the moment. Um, first one I want to talk about is Light Perpetual by Francis Spufford. Um, for many years, he's been a much lauded non fiction writer, and um, Golden Hill. I always want to say on Golden Hill. Yes. Golden Hill, uh, a novel set on Manhattan Island in the mid 18th century, um, had huge plaudits. But I think, I think it had its flaws. And um, this is a really fantastic bit of storytelling, like Perpetual. It imagines the lives of five ordinary Londoners born around the beginning of the Second World War, and all of them uh, are, are carefully drawn and reflect really different aspects of the second half of the 20th century. So really highly recommended. And it's got the most brilliant first sort of set piece, first um, chapter. But I won't tell you any more about that because you, you just have to read it. Um, the next book I wanted to, to mention was Strange Flowers by Donal Ryan. Um, now, Ryan's a, an Irish writer from rural Tipperary and he writes the most exquisite prose. Um, this novel, though, is, is a bit of a curate's egg. Uh, some wonderful bits and some quite... Um, Quite less good bits, I'd say. But he, he, he writes great prose, but he, this is... I just think it has its flaws. It's, he's, it's sort of story of idyllic country life, which is interrupted by the modern world. Um, and it doesn't quite come off, but I think um, he does do some things really well, one of which is this father-son relationship, which he, he writes brilliantly. So the third book I want to... Third and last book I want to mention is One Day I Shall Astonish the World by Nina Stibby. Um, it's the story of Susan and Roy... Roy works for a golf club and Susan is a, in a sewing shop and their world is told through Susan's eyes um, and it's very, very funny. Um, shades of Anne Bennett and Victoria Wood, but really she's uniquely herself. Um, so I'm only halfway through and not a great deal has actually happened in this book, but it is, it is wonderfully observed. It's the way she tells it's them. the way she tells them. Um, so I think that's going to be one I'm going to be recommending. It's funny you should mention Alan Bennett because he's my backlisted choice. Well, there you go. But it, just wonderful comic writing, really. I tell you where she's like Sue Townsend rather than Alan Bennett. I think is that the, she also cares for her characters, and I'll say more about the Alan Bennett thing okay. later. Well, we're joined by Ben Dark, and I'm very excited about this because. <laughs> I've heard about Ben for a long time from his dad, Ron Dark, who is chairman of the Sheet Parish Council. So, Ben, welcome. Ben Dark is a head gardener, journalist and landscape historian working at the top of British horticulture. He's been described as the future of horticulture by no less than Horticulture Weekly. A lot of horticulture. A there, lot of horticulture. I did well, didn't I? <laughs> and more importantly, the millennial Monty by Gardener's World magazine, and I assume that's Monty Don. I think it is. Uh, he's worked for embassies, cemeteries, heritage bodies and oligarchs, and... Oh, yeah, and, you've and, glide, yeah, glide. And, 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 he's worked at One Tree Books, but <gasps> as, a, as a work experience boy back in uh, over 20 years ago. 
Um, he'd worked for he was here for a couple of weeks. You modelled him. And, you shaped uh, his I shaped literary the way, progress. Shaped his literary progress, indeed. Um, but he's organised a private flower show for the royal family and helped build gold medal winning gardens on the main avenue at Chelsea Flower Show. So really, he knows his onions. Excellent. Well and I was petunias. having a go because I thought you slid neatly over oligarchs, but it was only because you wanted to say that he'd worked here. Um, he's also the creator and host of the award-winning Garden Log podcast. Ben, I think it's hilarious because I've heard about you for so long <laughs> as Ron's son, Ben, and Ron, who's um, the chair of our parish council. But I think very quickly, particularly after the book signing, it's going. he's going to become Ben Dark's father, which would be wonderful. Yes, he casts a large shadow in many ways, <laughs> and um, I'm emerging from it slowly. Well, it's wonderful to meet you, finally. I'm really excited. I think I'm going to hear the audiobook of The Grove because I know you've narrated it yourself. I have, yes. I'm regretting all those Chinese provinces that I put into the the middle sections. (laughs) I won't, I, won't, I won't say any of their names on this recording. So it's basically about the front gardens of London. Now, when I think of London front gardens, they all seem to be concreted over as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> with cars parked outside. So what inspired you? What inspired me was a wander around London that I took when I had three blissful weeks of furlough at the very beginning of the pandemic. I'm a head gardener, so actually it was perfectly safe for me to work there, but... We took three weeks when everyone was saying, do not leave the house. And I have a podcast in which I was telling quite a keen, enthusiastic listenership about the goings on on a large estate in the countryside, what it's like to be a head gardener. And I thought, well, we're slightly in need of content here. So I told them about what was going on in this walk I took, all of the strange things that my neighbours were doing and why, why on earth have they treated that prunus kanzan like that and what on earth is that doing there and not, not not in a horrible way but in a in a nice sort of friendly way and it got a really positive response so because well, we did all get fascinated by just the area around our house because we couldn't go far that's where we? we were limited to and there were people chalking on the pavement writing the names of the little little weeds in the cracks and there was a sudden focus on this limited limited bit of space around us and i suppose i was riding on that wave so when the editor got in touch to say, have you got any ideas for a book? I had this one <laughs> perfectly formed in my mind and said, well, as a matter of fact, I do have an idea and sent it off. I love that somebody approached you to write it. God, what bliss. <laughs> I know. I know you don't have to do that, um, that, that awful. Has anyone even looked at this submission <laughs> part of the process? I, I was lucky. It got mentioned in the, the FT. The, um, the podcast got mentioned and she was reading that and it came from there, I think. <laughs> I was going to start you from the beginning, really, which is what started off your, your love of, um, of plants and gardens. The love came, I think it comes from just a natural propensity to daydream. It's wandering around, looking at stuff and wasting time. Where? And, where were you doing that? Well, I was doing that through my childhood. No, no, I'm not when, <laughs> but were you here? Because I know you're local. I am local. Yes, I was wandering around the hills and wandering around the hangars and going up the, the old poet stone and looking at the trees up there. But I wasn't a gardener in my youth. I wasn't one of these people with pots lined up on their windowsills and seeds tucked under their mattresses. And after university, where I studied history, I had a disastrous foray into the corporate world and realised that I wanted to be outside somewhere doing something different. Gardening seemed like the natural place to go. And like with all these things, you you start in a subject and realise 
there is a whole world to discover. <laughs> and I was very lucky to, to fail so quickly in my first career <laughs> that I've had a very long <laughs> one already in gardening. So the book is basically uh, looking at, at the plants that are right in front of our faces that we see, see every day um, and telling us a bit more about them. Is that, is that how, it, how it, the structure of it, really? Exactly, right. I wanted to talk about plants that could be seen in basically any town and city in the UK. So the 20 plants that I choose are all fairly quotidian. You could probably see them on any walk to, to the shops for a bit of milk or whatever. And the glory in writing on reading and speaking about everyday plants is you have this wealth of other writers to draw on, which I really enjoyed in the book because everyone's written about Buddleia, be they in the Buddleia's favour or absolutely against it. Whereas if I was writing about rare gentians from the top of some alpine peak, I'd have to spend 300 pages beautifully describing their petals, and that's not as fun as, as the, the gossipy world of other people's opinions. So it's, it's nice in that regard. Yeah, because it's, it's a book without any... There are no colour picks in here. There's some beautiful line drawings, um, but it's not often you get a, a book about gardens that hasn't actually got any gardens on display. <laughs> They're all described, which is fantastic. They're all described, yes. I think it's, it's one of those things where it straddles the, the garden writing and the more general narrative nature writing. So it's certainly not a book full of tips, though if you read it closely, there are all sorts of tips and things that I've learned and my mistakes scattered through it. But it's not a, it's not a book that's led by images or by uh, a calendar. This is what you do this time of year, second week in February, start thinking about sweet uh, peas or whatever. Well, yeah, you see, I like the sound of that. Well, yeah, if, if I've got images, why would I need to go out and look? And if I've got a list of chores, well, really, I'll stop reading. Because it just makes me filled with guilt. Good. You're my ideal reader, then. <laughs> uh, I mean, you definitely seem to be as interested in the in the history of the plants as the plants themselves. I mean, I think there's a lot of. I mean, you're saying you were you you studied history. That's I, I studied I studied history at as an undergraduate, and actually, while I was writing the book, I was completing my MA in garden and landscape history, oh. which was a horrible clash of deadlines. <laughs> um, and so, I think quite a lot of that bled into the book because I was spending. A lot of time in the archives, I'd taken a, a day, a week off work to go and look into various musty files in the London Metropolitan Archives. And that comes through a little in the book as well. Did you have any exciting discoveries in the archives? I was just thinking, you know... <laughs> I, had, I had a couple. I don't know if there's any Civil War historians listening, but this is a good tip for them. I think that I found the first pictorial depiction of London's Civil War defences. It just happened to be on the edge of a map which is a boundary dispute between two farmers in what would later become a part of Bloomsbury. So that was quite exciting. But I couldn't base the essay I was writing around that because actually I had to tell the story of the later square, <laughs> the Georgian square that replaced it. So that was fun. And I also found a interesting report from Finsbury Park where they had a sort of heart of darkness figure gone rogue as head gardener. And oh. it was basically the testimonial of his... Um, his tribunal, his workplace tribunal, where he'd been caught tarring and feathering people who'd broken the bylaws. <laughs> and, I love um, it. Yes, so it would certainly make the heath much tidier, isn't it? <laughs> if, if, if people, uh, Mr. Kurtz, he if, dead. If, if, Mr. Kurtz, he out on a rowing boat. Uh, 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 yes, it was. Um, that was that was a great discovery. 
I like that, that 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 gets into the book. I Does tell, it? I tell the Finsbury Park story. Excellent. The but the, the Grove actually is, is South London, isn't it? That's where, where it's set. Is is um, it's South London? Yes. Camberwell, Peckham, or exactly. points those, east. Those Camberwell, Peckham borders. And I think it's something about the the history of of sort of inner London suburbia. If you know what I mean, so where. You know, successive waves of people have arrived arrived there. Um, you know, very, first it was a wealthy area, then it got subdivided, then it became a wealthy area again, and then something else happened. And it's it is it is fascinating that actually. It's it's really really interesting, and these things do leave their mark in in the gardens that remain there, and the literature of the period, the various people sneering at their neighbours or, or what things have become, and as you say, Grove Grove Park, the, the road that I talk about used to be a great estate of a, of a Quaker doctor, very, very well known in the latter part of the 18th, in the 18th century. And then it becomes, the railway comes, it gets turned into big mansion houses, and then the railway brings the clerks down from the city and the people in the mansion houses go, oh, oh we better get elsewhere or stop putting up our barriers. And quite often we find in, in horticulture and gardening that um, that plants are some ways signifies of, of social position so you get very deliberate plantings of well this is a road of lilac and viburnum not like that road down there which is a road of hanging baskets and fuchsias and you can see that through the various depictions of the road isn't that so british though the, the ultimate and we still have it you know we would sneer at a begonia and yet a beautiful pure white rose or something is oh classy it's very funny isn't it and it's tied up with all sorts of strange notions of of purity and chastity and this well it's just terribly overbred and you get people people who get very very upset about there's a chap i mentioned in there called cherry ingram who's doing a lot of work on the um, native cultivars of cherries in japan but to hear him <laughs> writing about the double flowered cultivars that we're seeing coming out just at the moment and he's writing about them as if they're they're prostitutes and uh, slattens and all this sort of a stuff. A purist. He's a purist and then um, and yes, and there's all there's a there's a whole coded language of our plants and not our plants. But I write quite a lot about Fita Sackville West and her husband uh, Harold Nicholson in yep. the book. And their letters to each other. They are explicitly talking about this sort of thing. They talk of plants as, well, they're Ascot and Sunningdale sort of plants. <laughs> <laughs> and they talk about rhododendrons as if they're, they're, they're like big, heavy stockbrokers who we don't want to have to dinner. <laughs> I'm with them there on the rhododendron. No, I th- but I disagree with um, their simile. But I think it's just everywhere you go in because I do wild walks as a Mm. podcast as well. So I walk the dog every day and I just see the encroachment of it. So it's really it's more this land grab that rhododendrons do. You know, of the of the of the Ponticum. Yes, the um, that that, that purple flowered one that you see all over the place. Yes, that's that's the the ones come here. Yeah. Yeah, I think they're talking about it in terms of. It's a plant for the the new money. It's a plant for. Yeah, yeah, oh, I've got them. a big gate in it. Yeah. Yes. Look at my drive. Look at my exactly. Mm-hmm. Look at my driveway. Okay. It's funny. I love your description of the uh, beech tree, uh, beech hedges, um, being stuck in permanent adolescence because they <laughs> because they 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 have been cut back so much that the uh, some, some some hormone thing or something that they don't release, which doesn't let the leaves fall. Oh, so they stay, clever! They keep their leaves all. All year, the hedges, whereas the trees... Look what, easy. by careful pruning? Exactly. Have you ever noticed how if you have beech hedge, 
at this time of year, it's still got its rustly old leaves on. Yes. They stay there all winter, and then a beech tree goes completely bare, as you'll see up on the hills around here. And it's a phenomenon called marcescence. And marcescence happens because you've changed, as Tim says, the hormone profile of the plant. So you've taken away the apical buds with all the auxins, and so the plant thinks it's still in a state of sort of juvenilia, and the young trees retain their leaves as a little bit of extra protection. And the plant, no matter how old, retains that that way. Essentially, a beech hedge is, is, is living to a very, very old age, but in, in adolescent form. So what, what happens with topiary? Is that a similar notion? or If it's a beech topiary. So if it's a beech topiary, like you might see in an Arne Maynard or a Tom Stewart Smith garden that's got its things on, that's, that's the same. In a evergreen topiary, a yew topiary, or a box topiary, it's slightly different, but, but a similar principle. And it's, um, what, what we're doing effectively is, is coppicing it. And coppice woods, as you'll know from your nature walks, can be ancient, ancient, ancient things. We're just, we're just coppicing it as a pollard at hedge height. <laughs> yeah. Of the 19 um, plants that you, that you talk about, what's your favourite? <laughs> oh, that's hard. That is a very, very hard one. Well, I mean, the grapevine gives us wine. Which, oh, is a, um, <laughs> which is a benefit <laughs> right. to me. I like the hollyhock because I think oh, I they're, love they're fun. And well, yes, as a sheet sheet person, you how could you not? I'm the hollyhock down, yeah. on the way down to the eighty seven two. There, I mentioned those hollyhocks in the book actually. They oh, do you? Yeah. And do you garden yourself, Ben? Or is it one of those things like the cobbler's children has no shoes because this <laughs> is your job? Do no, you? I do. I do garden. I like. I like gardening, but I like to do a sort of kind of laissez-faire style so it's not too much work. And you say, well, that's intentional. It's supposed to be better. Exactly. <laughs> it's posh. It's exactly. posh to have a lot of perennials. It, and... it is, and things splattering all over the place and blurring boundaries. So I, I go for that kind of gardening. I've been very lucky in that I have the tiniest garden in the world, so <laughs> you don't have much gardening to do. And is it like, if you go out to a dinner party, is it like a doctor where they said, oh, my knee's been giving me jip. Do you get, oh, I've got rust on the hollyhocks. Yeah, what do I do? Constantly. You get, a lot do you? Of, you get a lot of invites to people's houses where you realise, oh, actually, no, you have no interest in my personality. <laughs> <laughs> interest in my B-tech in, in horticulture. <laughs> um, but I don't mind. I like, I like plants and I like going and seeing new places. <laughs> Excellent. So going back to the book again, did you, do you, did you enjoy writing it? Is it, was, it was it a pleasure or did you find it a bit of a chore. It was a great. We agreed to do it. Yeah. It was a great pleasure. It was hard work. Are we still in lockdown for the writing, or well, yeah, were we in springing? that sort of in out in out sort of bits okay. and pieces? But I, I wrote it over a year. I think I had a year, well, just less than a year uh, for my deadline. But I also had a new son who features quite a lot through the narrative. Solomon, Solomon, yes, and then, oh, lovely. Yeah, and I had the masters to finish, and I had a full time job, and I had a three hour commute because I was commuting out of London to the Chilterns to do a garden. So it was written quite a lot at or the morning and getting the writing in. Luckily, because it's just all of my interests put in one place, I didn't have to reach very hard. I think the hardest thing is to, to write when you think, I've got 5,000 words to fill. How on earth am I going to do that? And this was a case of, how can I fit all of these things that I want to talk about in these slim pages? So that was a, uh, <laughs> that was a pleasure. It was a pleasure to write. Good. And, what, and what's next? You've got another, another idea for a book or are you going to concentrate on the gardening for a while? Well, I'm, I'm soaking up ideas. I mean, this is sort of 15 years of gardening experience and anecdote and 
It's like the second album, isn't it? You, you use all your best songs. I want to, I want to yeah. absorb a bit more first. We, we've moved to Copenhagen um, very recently, so I'm just soaking up that city a little bit. Oh, that would be getting, wonderful. Yeah. I'm so jealous. <laughs> if I was your age, I'd be straight over to Copenhagen. It's a great place. Oh, really wonderful. nice city. Really nice city to live yeah. in. Oh, yes. You'll have a second book, no problem. <laughs> The bit I did read about you, because I did obviously do some research and looked at your website, <laughs> lovely photographs there, um, and you reference Edward Thomas, of course, and Children Must and Hilton, and I loved something he wrote, I've put you on the spot now, about um, seeing the South Downs, and on the, my walk today I was desperately trying to remember what it was. Yeah. Well, this, this bit's talking about how I sort of came to decipher plants. I grew up in Hampshire at the foot of Shoulder of Mutton Hill, where a stone dedicated to Edward Thomas looks out on 60 miles of South Downs at one glance. As a teenager, I walked his woods, but in his poems, I read, I read the plants as rhythm and colour alone, a nice-sounding signifier for something fleeting or ancient, hawthorn, berry and hazel tuft, elm, celandine and charlock, words with as much meaning as his vanished manners of Codham, Cockridden and Childerditch. Wonderful. Oh, I'm so glad you read that. It's, no. And it's better said aloud, actually, than just reading in your head. Thank you. No, it's nice to, it's nice to get out and read nice Thomas's beautiful that. words. Yeah. yeah, I'm definitely getting the audiobook. <laughs> oh, good. good. So, Tim, what have we got to look out for in the coming month or so? Well, it's turning to quite a good, uh, good month, actually. We've the first one book I wanted to talk about was Sea of Tranquility by Emily St. John Mandel. Now, she wrote Station Eleven and more recently The Glass Hotel. Um, this book is set in different times, past, present and future, and involves time travel. Uh, this very clever and gripping novel is not everyone's cup of tea, but I loved it. Um, it, it I think she's, she's uh, a, a great plotter uh, of stories as well as a, as a really good um, pro stylist. So, so she manages the She the manages time it shifts. really well, yes. Okay. Um, she's a Canadian writer. She's, she's great. Mm. Next book I want to mention is Elizabeth Finch by Julian Barnes. Now, every new Barnes novel is an event. Um, he always writes intelligent books, and this is no exception. Um, the Elizabeth Finch of the title is an academic who, who sort of captivates the narrator as a young man, uh, with her distinctive and brilliant style. It's a short novel, which doesn't always perhaps live up to its, its bravura start, but it's really well worth reading. It's not a, it's not a love story or anything like that. It's just a, a story about um, a, great, a great mind and, and how, it, how it works. So that's uh, Elizabeth Finch by Julian Barnes. Um, the third uh, new novel I want to talk about is, we mentioned earlier, Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus, who's a... Uh, a, a, a American woman in her 60s and it's her first novel um, so that would normally be a, a book that, that wouldn't really cross the radar of, of most folk um, but actually there's been a lot of noise around this book um, and I think it might be quite a big seller it's set in the sort of late 50s and 60s and it's about Elizabeth Zott she's a brilliant chemist who ends up as a TV cook um, but it's about much more than that it's about it's about rowing <laughs> Children, dogs, um, it's got bags of charm uh, and heartbreak and joy. Um, it's got great narrative drive. 
and I'm sure it's going to be a success. It's it's very much to do um, with a recognisable place of women at that time and yeah. how we struggled for any form of recognition, particularly intellectual and particularly scientific. Not that I would know about that. And I think also particularly in America as well, actually. I think it, I think <sighs> Do you it's, think? It's, yeah, well, I th- well, maybe maybe that's... Mm. Uh, having been, been uh, watching the brilliant... My brilliant friend, mm-hmm. the... Um, Eleanor Ferrante. Uh, Eleanor Ferrante's thing on television, I haven't read, read the first book, but... Uh, that's very much of the same same theme and the same period, but uh... well, a lot of what she was saying, I completely related to in a later decade. I, I would say the seventies. Right here, right. I could still absolutely get that. But it, it's a, you know, it's daft to say that's a very light touch, but it's it's chiaroscura, isn't it? You you know, you do feel the tragedy and sadness and injustice, but yep. also the rest of it makes you laugh. Some, out very, loud. some very joyful so, bits yeah, as well. Yeah. Um, we mentioned John le Carre earlier and uh, just to mention that his, his last book, Silverview, is just about to come out in paperback. Um, so that's one to watch out for. And you really rated it, didn't you? No, I haven't read it. I haven't read oh, it. you haven't read it? No, I haven't read Somebody it. Somebody said he's back on form. No, well, uh, it's good to go out, on a, go out on a high, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and the other paperback I wanted to mention is The Island of Missing Trees by Elif Shafak, uh, this is a book, it's set in Cyprus in the 70s. Um, it's had some fabulous reviews, and I haven't read it yet, and it's on my list of, uh, of must-reads. So that's just about to come out in paperback as well. Thanks, Tim. Some great authors there. And now let's hear from another, Patrick Gale. Hello, Patrick. Very nice to have you here on Talking Books. Um, first of all, tell us about Mother's Boy, your 17th novel, as you just corrected me, and your 20th book. It's, um, it's a novel, but it's also like a sort of biography in that it's about the early life of the great Cornish poet Charles Causley and also about his mysterious and clearly indomitable mother, Laura, who was a laundress who raised him pretty much single-handedly. And I've always been fascinated by Causley, partly because I've never quite believed the official version about him. And the official version is that he um, died a virgin, lived with his mother, was a wonderful primary school teacher and a great poet. End of story. And whenever anyone asked him, Charles, why don't you write your memoirs? Because he was full of very funny stories. He always said, oh, I don't need to because it's all in the poems. And that's a typically dusty answer from a man who was trained as a coder and I think was a little bit like a spy in the way he hid behind this official version, this official, very respectable mask. Um, So I've gone back to the sources. I've gone back to his private diaries, his letters, and I've gone back to the poems. And I've tried to bring his early life to life on the page. So it's not the story of a poet. It's the story of how a boy grows up and becomes a poet through the trauma, largely, of the Second World War. Right. And what led you to Causley in in the first place? Uh, a series of things, really. I was partly living in Cornwall, because he was, when I first moved to Cornwall in the mid-80s, he was living just up the road. And, in fact, we knew people in common, and I kept missing the opportunity to meet him. I wish now I had. Um, but after about 15 years of living in Cornwall, I was approached by the Charles Causley Trust. This was after his death ask if I'd become a director of the Trust. And initially I, I did it because I said, well, I'm not a poet and I don't know that much about poetry. And they persisted and I, I gave in because I realised I had a certain amount of pulling power. I might better help things happen for them. 
And I'm very conscientious. So having joined the Trust, whose purpose is to keep his name alive and to carry on his work with children and poetry, I became more and more inquisitive about his life and where he lived and what made him tick. And then I realised this book was growing in my head. So I felt I had to go to the trustees and say, now look, um, tell me if you don't want me to do this, but I'd really love to write a novel about Charles, but it will rattle some cages because I, I basically, I don't want to out him exactly, but I am going to give him a sex life. Yep. Um, and they were delighted because I think they were worried that his the official version is so dry right. um, and unsexy that, that his reputation was going to slip off the, sure. the public scale. Because actually in the novel, uh, which is, is wonderful, by the way, and, and, and thank you for that, but it, it's, it's not, um, there's not an awful lot of poetry in it, is there? So, no, because one of the mysteries about Charles um, is that he was a playwright, not a poet, really, um, until after the war. He becomes a poet during the war and in his time in the Navy working as a coder. And I, I really wanted to get to the heart of why that was. And I suspect a big part of it was to do with privacy. He was a deeply private man, as was his mother. And I think his early experiments, first of all, in drama, which did pretty well, considering he was self-taught and hadn't gone to university. He had plays put on the radio um, and published. They're pretty awful plays, but they are all plays in which he is very clearly there as a young man. Um, And then he did an experiment with fiction. He began a novel, which he abandoned, um, very funny novel, and he wrote several short stories as well, all about his time in the Navy. But again, he feels nakedly present in them and I think he preferred poetry because it was more discreet it gave him a sort of layer two layers three layers of code right. that he could disappear behind because uh, that's interesting the interesting part of that about his 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 wartime career is as mm. this uh as a as a wireless operator but he 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 did the codes he, he, he was a coder yeah. yes it was a, it was such a new rank when he signed up that they hadn't yet designed a badge for the coders. It was sent to him afterwards in Skegness, where he was training, and he had to sew it onto his uniform himself. Um, It was the result of all the code-breaking that was going on at Bletchley Park. They needed men and women in the field who could really swiftly take a message that had been decoded from Morse and decode it further, because it would be in a secondary code that changed from week to week. Sounds absolutely impossible. (laughs) I think he'd have been very good at crosswords. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you wrote this during lockdown, presumably. I did, or... yes, yes. I started researching it before lockdown, and the timing was pretty much perfect, although I did maddeningly have to miss out on some of the last section of research because I was going to the Causley Archive every week, right. which is in Exeter. Did you get to and Gibraltar? Was... You, you I went there? to Gibraltar, I went to Malta, I stayed in the governor's house in Malta, which was completely thrilling because when he was in Malta, that was one of the places where he worked. Yeah. Uh, in the ballroom of Governor's House, it was converted to a coding office. You spent a lot of time researching your books, don't you? That's one of the one of the one of the um, one of the things you. It's the, my shtick. One I of suppose. your things, yeah. Yes. So you really yeah. get you really get under the skin. I like detail. Characters. I really yeah. like detail. Yeah. I end up cutting most of it out, but I like to give that that sense of authenticity. And right. and in this book, there was so much to research. I mean, 
obviously on Charles's side, I had to research the Navy the and coding. stuff as well. You're an expert. Yes, at, at, I, I'm very good at taking <laughs> out stains now um, because his mother, Laura, worked as a laundress, which was incredibly hard work. Um, and I wanted that to come alive on the page. And in fact, when I handed the first draft to my editor, she sighed deeply after reading it and said, oh, I can see that laundry is to this book what ploughing was to a place called winter. Now we can remove <laughs> most of it. <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. And you've got plans for the next book already? I, I, I have, yes. I'm, I'm going to write a sort of sequel to A Place Called Winter, which um, is another historical novel, and that was based on the mystery of my great-grandfather, Harry, who abandoned his wife and child to go away to Canada and be a farmer. Well, what this next novel will do is to examine what happened in 1953 when, as an old man... Harry suddenly got in touch with his long-lost daughter, my grandmother, and said, hello, dear, I'm, I'm selling the farm and I'm coming home to my little girl. And she was completely horrified because she was a grandmother by this stage and the last thing she wanted during the years of rationing was an extra mouth to feed. Um, and in a way, the, the mystery behind this novel, um, I have to honour the facts, but the mystery is why my grandmother did what she did, which was pretty shocking. She, she ends up sending him back to Canada to right. die, and he died a, pa a pauper there. Yeah, yeah it's pretty right. shocking stuff. So this, but, uh, we're now getting on to, on to people that you knew, obviously you knew your, knew your yes. grandmother. And that's, so I mean, how do, how do the rest of your, your, your family members, how do they think They're shifting nervously. <laughs> I think they yeah. know, I think my siblings know that um, they're perfectly safe because they're alive. Right. Um, my, I have warned my sister, she will appear in this novel as a baby. So that's right. pretty harmless. Okay. So that... um, but the thing is, I, I, yes, I loved my grandmother and my mother dearly, but I only knew the official version. And in researching this book, I'm going to be, re -read, I'm going to be reading letters they wrote to each other several times a week throughout the period the novel is set. It gets a bit, it gets a bit close, to, get close to home with Tumpo. <laughs> so, I mean, you, I mean, it's interesting, the last sort of few novels you've written, not quite the last few, but the, um, the winter, the, 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 yeah. the Canadian one, and... and well, Take Nothing With one. You is quite autobiographical right. as well, to some extent. Right. Sorry, that wasn't what well, you were Well, I was going to say, yeah, that, that um, you obviously you mine your, your own personal life or, your, or your, the things you know about, at least, yeah. uh, in your fiction... But it just it's it's when you're writing about a real person like Courtier, it's must be a bit a bit of tension between your desire to do a to to be true to the story to his story, mm. but also to write a good novel. Because it's very hard because you, you you want to honour the facts, but you've got to bring them to life as a character. Yeah. And half the reason for writing the book is that Causley wasn't like living for me on the page. Um, I mean, the, the novel the the poems are amazing. And there were wonderful recordings of him speaking and so on. But I, I, I really needed to crack him open a bit. And that is, it is a daunting thing to do. And there comes a point when you suddenly realise you're not researching anymore. It's turned into a novel. Yeah. Um, they are just a character and you have to make them work as a character. And uh, of course, I'm now having the rather painful thing of having readers contact me to say the things I've got wrong which is inevitable, and that's a, a bit of a problem when you base a novel on real people and real life, is yeah. that readers will often, if you succeed, readers will read it as if it's a slice of history and not a novel. Yes. And so they will feel they need to correct things you've, inverted commas, got wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing about when you watch a film that's based on purely on, on absolute truth, you, it sometimes it misses something because it doesn't have the... The, the, the arc that is of story that a, a yeah, novel has. That, yeah. And I know you've talked uh, before about your um, 
building your characters up from the from the bottom and and creating a, a character, and then that you then you know that character, and then that character will then acts in character. And uh, then you get a story from it. And the plot sort of emerges organically that way. I mean, in this case, it it was a challenge to start with because I knew Laura and Charles weren't rich. I knew they didn't move much. They had quite quiet, poor lives. Um, And there didn't seem to be much plot other than Charles just getting older. Uh, But I realised once I got under their skins that actually there was masses of plot, that there were all those tensions between a mother and a son. And I, I wanted to explore the, the makings of what would become a kind of marriage because yeah. Charles's father, Charlie, died when he was a little, very little boy and Laura never remarried. And in many ways, they became all in all to each other. And when she finally died, he was completely devastated because it was like losing a wife. Right, right. It reminds, it reminds me a bit of the Lowry story. I mean, if you... I don't know if you've seen that, that, that the film about about Larry and his mother. Yes, yes. I know it's not the same, but all, no, well, well, I mean, no, but there um, are similarities. Yeah. And and Larkin and his mother. I mean, yeah. that it's very interesting. These these rather brilliant, um, often basically quite kind of working class men. Yeah. And these with amazing creativity. With amazing yeah. creativity, but quite indomitable mothers yes. as well, who yeah. on one level protected them. Yeah. I mean, Charles's mother undoubtedly acted as a kind of guard dog. And as part of the research for the book, I spent time living in their house in uh, Cypress Well. It's the last of the, the cottages they lived in at Launceston. And it's tiny. It's a two up, two down. And you're very aware of the dynamics of their relationship because when you come in through the front door, immediately in front of you is Laura's armchair. And right. that was how you had to get past her <laughs> yeah. to get to Charles's room at the back right. of the house. Yeah, And, and, and protecting him... His reputation and everything. About his him. reputation, and undoubtedly, there were there were you know, women who set their hats at him. He was a yeah. catch. He was Mr. Causley, the the right. primary school teacher, um, and I think she saw them off. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for coming today, Patrick. And it's been. Um, I would re- really recommend this book. It's uh, it's a great read. So thank, thank you, Tim. Thanks for the treat. Well, as if by magic, my backlisted choice this month is Alan Bennett. And and you know, we didn't pre-talk about this, but um, having talked to Ben about class system and so on, I was reminded a bit in Four Stories by Alan Bennett, which was our sheet um, book group choice for this month, which we haven't got round to talking about yet for various reasons. Um, but these are four stories which have been published before variously as sort of long short stories in the London Review of Books. What I'm going to read is from The Clothes They Stood Up In about a couple that get burgled and the burglar takes absolutely everything. Um, d- just absolutely everything uh, apart from the, the clothes, clothes they, they stood, stood up, up in, in <laughs> because they were at the theatre. Um, very grandly so they're very middle class so I'm just going to read a little bit that I think and we'll we'll talk about afterwards because it is so reeking of class and I hope a bit of nostalgia for for you listeners it was on the third of these increasingly flustered trips now having forgotten plastic cutlery that Mrs Ransom ventured into Mr Anwar's she passed the shop many times as it was midway between the flats 
and St John's Wood High Street. Indeed, she remembered it opening and the little drapers and baby's knitwear shop which it had replaced and where she had been a loyal customer. That had been kept by a Miss Dorsey, from whom over the years she had bought the occasional tray cloth or hank of silco, but on a much more regular basis plain brown paper packets of what in those days were called towels. The closing down of the shop in the late 60s had left Mrs Ransom anxious and unprotected and it came as a genuine surprise on venturing into Timothy White's to find that the technology in this intimate department had lately made great strides which were unreflected in Miss Dorsey's ancient stock of which Mrs Ransom, as the last of a dwindling clientele, had been almost the sole consumer. She was old-fashioned, she knew that but snobbery had come into it too, Mrs Ransom feeling it vaguely classier to have her requirements passed wordlessly across the counter with Miss Dorsey's patient, suffering smile. Ah, cross, it said, rather than taken from some promiscuous shelf in Timothy White's. Though it was not long before Timothy White's went the same way as Miss Dorsey, swallowed whole by boots, though boots too, she felt, was a cut above the nearest chemist super drug, which didn't look classy at all. The closing down of Miss Dorsey's, she was found laid across the counter one afternoon having had a stroke, left the premises briefly empty until passing one morning on the way to the high street, Mrs Ransom saw that the shop had been taken over by an Asian grocer and that the pavement in front of the window where nothing had previously stood except the occasional customer's pram was now occupied by boxes of unfamiliar vegetables, yams, pawpaws, mangoes and the like, together with many sacks. So it was partly out of loyalty to Miss Dorsey and partly because it wasn't really her kind of thing that Mrs Ransom had not ventured into the shop until this morning when to save her trailing back for the umpteenth time to the high street she thought she might go in and ask if they had such a thing as boot polish. There were more pressing requirements as she would have been the first to admit only Mr Ransom was very particular about his shoes. Though over 20 years had passed the shop was still recognisably what it had been in Miss Dorsey's day, because other than having introduced a freezer and cold cupboards, Mr Anwar had simply adapted the existing fixtures to his changed requirements. Drawers that had previously been devoted to the genteel accoutrements of a leisured life, knitting patterns, crochet hooks, rufflette, now housed nuns and pit bread, spices replaced bonnets and booties, and the shelves and deep drawers that once were home to hosiery and foundation garments were now filled with rice and chickpeas. Tim, so what I want to say about that is I found it, I, I loved it when I first read it, but now revisiting it, I find it forensic in the examination and, and list of all things class, nostalgic, the actual items that, you know, his memory for this stuff. He must have been pretty young himself when he would have come across that. But he can nail it with a name. He, I, I love his specificity. He's so precise. He doesn't just say a reel of cotton or something. It's silco. Um, and I, I don't even know what rufflet is, but I think that's rather wonderful. But what I did find about it is that he's also forensic in the examination of emotion, but he kind of stands outside it, like a lepidopterist might describe the beauty of a butterfly's wing, but from having pinned it into its box. So that's how I'm feeling about it. 
Ben should have talked about class with the plants in front gardens and so on. And, you know, in his way, he lists the kind of, um, well, I reference begonia and things, but Budlia has that effect on people, doesn't it? And, yeah. Interesting. Interesting stuff. Yeah. Well, that was great. That's That was a very packed 20th edition, Tim, I think. Well, worthy of, it, uh, worthy of a 20th edition. Our guest in May will be David Fennell, whose chilling new thriller, See No Evil, will be published on the 28th of April, follow-up to his very successful genre debut, The Art of Death. Dave and I did our MA together at West Dean, so I don't want any comment from our producer about another degree. <laughs> he is laughing. And... Um, Davy's bio reads a bit like Reacher. I've tried to get Tim to do this in a Belfast accent and he's being really naughty and refusing. So I'm just going to have to do it in a completely non, in a, in a Portsmouth accent. I was born in Belfast during the Troubles and grew up in the last working class, religiously mixed area of the city. I left Belfast for London in 1985 with £50 in one pocket and a dog-eared copy of Stephen King's The Stand in the other. I had big pockets. Actually, I've had a brilliant idea. Um, in May, we should get Davy to actually repeat that, shouldn't we? So well, that's really all for, for this time. Um, thanks for listening. And don't forget, you can, you can listen to this, uh, listen to uh, the other 19 episodes of our podcast um, in all the usual places. Uh, we love hearing your comments and recommendations. Don't forget to let us know what you're reading in local book groups and we'll mention it on the programme. Well, that was great. I really enjoyed that one, Tim. Thank you, Susie. Really good fun. You have been listening to Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly, and produced by John Wellsman. on Petersfield's Shine Radio or to sponsor our volunteer team call Petersfield 555 500 or email team at shineradio.uk Shine Radio